0: you. What's been
1: happening on the Riviera lately, besides drug-pushing, murders, rapes and robberies? Anything nasty?
2: Hello and welcome to episode five of ITC Entertain the World podcast. As if you haven't guessed, today we're talking about the Zoo Gang from the theme music. Before we start, though, I'd like to introduce my co-hosts, Al Smudge and Rodney Marshall, who are always here with me. Rodney, I think you were going to say something about the previous four podcasts, Mm. weren't you?
1: Yeah, only in as much as so far, we've looked at four very different shows. But each one, I think from a 2020 perspective, we've agreed is a huge success. So obviously, we started with Gideon's Way. I think we both said 26 impressive episodes. There isn't a clunker in there. Uh, We then looked at Danger Man, Half Hours. And I think we agreed, all three of us, it's a landmark series. It paved the way for all the action adventure that we associate with ITC. Man in a Suitcase, both sides are swinging London, that unique magnetic Richard Bradford that you can't take your eyes off. And then last time out, the ultimate ITC spectacle, The Persuaders, with that Curtis and Moore chemistry never to be repeated, probably. This time round, we're probably going to need a little bit of a post-mortem, I guess, in that it's a mini-series where there are certain things that I think work very well, but we can't. Quite celebrate it as a complete success in the way that we did the other ones. Would that be fair enough to say?
2: I think so, yes. I mean, it's an interesting point you make there about it being a mini series because this is the only ITC action adventure mini series. It's also the last, with the exception of Return of the Saint, the last action adventure series that ITC would make. So we're talking about it being in production in 1973. The gap to Return of the Saint is five years and then after that there's no more. So it does have quite an interesting place in ITC's history of action and adventure shows. We should start really with how the series came about. I mean it's based on I say based, loosely based, on Paul Gallico's book of the same name, The Zoo Gang. I have it here in front of me. He was also the author of The Poseidon Adventure. And that had been a very successful movie in 1972. And I think that was partially responsible for Lou Grade wanting to have a slice of the action of Paul Gallico's work
3: i don't really know to be perfectly honest where where lou comes from with Gallico. but as you say yes it's very loosely based on the book there are some themes that cross over into the tv series but the the television series is quite a different beast but i I wouldn't be surprised with lou spotting um, a successful author and obviously there's the later connection with lou with um, itc going into filmmaking as well so that would potentially be a big attraction because you could get essentially a top flight scenarist, screenwriter,
2: out of it. John Huff says in one of the DVD audio commentaries that Gallico was friendly with Lou Grade and that's how Lou Grade managed to persuade him to get the rights to make the series, which is quite an interesting thing because that's coming from someone who was involved with the show. But it's unique in some ways because obviously it's got four leads and four equal billing leads I know they come in a certain order in the credits, but they're all equal in terms of the billing. So we've got Brian Keith, who plays the American Stephen Halliday, a.k.a. The Fox. We've got John Mills, who plays Tommy Devon. He's the English part of the quartet, who's a.k.a. The Elephant. Lily Palmer, who's the Leopard and French, who plays Manouche Roger, And Barry Morse, who is the tiger and Canadian and plays Alec Marlowe. So we've got a little clip of Barry Morse remembering his time on The Zoo Gang. And this comes from a lady called Ros Connors, who I must thank for allowing me to use this on this podcast. So thanks, Ros.
4: Ah, that was very interesting. And we were all very sorry that it couldn't be made into more episodes. I think we only did five or six. And that was because we were all, under obligation from our existing contracts to do some other show. Dear John Mills uh, and Lily Palmer, we, all three of us, had other commitments, and so we couldn't do more than about, I think, half a dozen episodes of The Zoo Gang. But it was immensely enjoyable. Partly because it was all shot in the south of France. We all stayed just outside Marseille, a very beautiful part of the world. But I played a Canadian in that, didn't I? Yes, because we all came from different places. I was from Canada, Johnny Mills was from England, that's right, and Lily Palmer was supposed to be from Czechoslovakia or somewhere, I can't remember. And the other actor, of course, is Brian Keith, the, Brian the, the American. American. Yes, that's right. I remember that. I'd forgotten Brian Keith's name. These.
2: Actors all came from certain ways into the show. But I think just looking at them, if you know what I mean when I say this, they look slightly too old on screen for what they are, even though their age is right. If you look at Tony Curtis, for example, in Persuaders when he's in late 40s, he still looks great. I think these guys, they are right in terms of age for the show, but they kind of look five years too old, if you know what I mean.
3: I can see where you're coming from there, yeah.
2: Let's start with Brian Keith. So, Brian <laughs> Keith is, like I say, the American, Stephen Halliday, who, for me, when I watched these six episodes, I felt he was the weakest out of the four characters and gave the mm-hmm. weakest performance. I don't know if that is something to do with him being American and lots of the American actors that came over to Europe struggled with the british way that we made film series here it's a shame actually because i think after sort of two or three episodes he begins to warm up a bit and loosen up and i think that he gets better but i read somewhere i can't remember where i'm surrounded by literature here that John Mill said he felt that Brian Keith gave up after sort of about three episodes. Now, if he gave up after three episodes, those last three seem to be a lot <laughs>
3: better.
2: <laughs> so I'm not sure think- with that.
3: Yeah, Mills said it in his autobiography. But then it, it is only Mills' view, really. He said he they had problems with the script from day one, and he said they were they were all pretty dreadful. And they even employed his wife, Mary Ailey Bell, to try to rewrite one, rewrite one particular scene rather. He said that the poor scripts seemed to knock the wind out of Brian Keith. And he, and he sort of wandered through scenes looking bewildered and lost. But if that's the case, like you just said, Jazz, it makes you wonder what the production order was. I don't think he necessarily drifts through. And the odd thing is, as Rodney pointed out in the notes that he sent through, and to go with the book, the fox in the book is the leader of the zoo gang, the colonel. And sort of by default, Brian Keith seems to pick up that status anyway. That they, they always, He's always the touchstone for the gang. But I don't think, looking at it, I mean, I I read the the Mills book page, the Mills book, uh, but looking at it again, I thought, no, I don't don't think he necessarily does drift through all of it, to be perfectly honest. He's got a a little presence still.
1: I think one of the problems is, to be fair to him, his character isn't given much to work with so i mean barry morse's character for example he's able to break into places and he's a great mechanic etc obviously john mills character he's an artist and forger and lily palmer is almost sort of the leader of the gang i mean she hosts them and everything else and you you do feel that well what was sort of brian keith's character given Mm -hmm. he's not given a huge amount to work with is he
3: well I, I i would agree with that and i would follow that into the barry morse character because i don't think the barry morse character is properly exploited to be perfectly honest i mean yes he, he does stuff and he's got action scenes but if you look at it a lot of his stuff is is sort of standing around and observing and keeping an eye on the gang in general tipping them off when the police are coming or the villains are coming or whatever and, and i think sort of keith and morse can tend to drift into the background I would agree because actually
2: when you look at what is happening on screen when Lily Palmer and John Mills share the scenes together they're really great they they emote so much Mm -hmm. particularly in their eyes which I think is a sign of a great actor I think Stephen Halliday did have that sort of role of being the leader of the gang that they defaulted to but he didn't really do much. I, I, you're quite right where sort of Mills has this thing where he's a forger and he seems to love getting dressed up and being in disguise. And, you know, Lily Palmer is sort of the host of the whole thing. And when I first watched it years ago, I kind of remembered her being a bit of a mothery type character mothering them along but actually yeah re-watching it i don't think she's like that actually i think she's quite cold-hearted and she's the one who really wants the revenge on the nazis all the time if anyone's involved with the nazis like you know that
3: first episode i'll kill him she's got the strongest drive and philosophy of all the four
1: in a way, I guess, isn't that partly because I'd suggest there are actually five of them. Now, the wolf is there, even though he's not there. The wolf being obviously Claude Roget, her husband, who she saw murdered while their child is kicking in her stomach, I think she says in one of the episodes. And he's almost a defining absence. He's almost haunting the show because they all knew him. They relay stories uh, to Georges about, you know, what it was like being part of the resistance. I almost feel that he is there, particularly for her, the whole time, that part of her sort of role in bringing the zoo gang back together is paying homage to her dead husband, isn't it?
3: I think that, that's a very good point, yes. I think you're right. He is, as you say, an overarching presence in the thing.
2: Yeah, he's there all the time, isn't he? He's kind of just like on her shoulder. In a way, he's some—he's a bit like her conscience.
3: To come back to Brian Keith, he's got that lovely little scene in Counterfeit Trap where he dresses up as the copper. Surprise, surprise, another copper disguise. Mm. And he goes off to see Leon Lisek as the little villain. That is lovely that there's so much sort of lightness to it before the payoff at the end of the scene. It's it's really, really nice. And
2: see, now that's where I think Mills has got it slightly wrong because he plays that scene, Brian Keith, brilliantly. We've only very briefly discussed Brian Keith and his character there, but we're going to do this with all four of them. So we should move on really to John Mills, who's Tommy Devon. I really like him in this I think that he brings so much to the screen, not only in when he's doing the straight parts, but he's got some great light comic touches. And when he's in disguise, there's a couple like where he, in The Lion Hunt, I think he, he dresses up as the old guy in that sort of what I would call cream suit and gets into the apartment. That's one disguise. But I love him as the drunken fisherman in The Twisted Cross. He is absolutely brilliant in that and again he's sharing that scene with lily palmer predominantly and they're great they're so watchable those two when they're together
3: it's very sort of i mean that's a brilliant piece of comic relief because i know rodney likes his drama laced with a bit of wit and there, there are witty touches and i mean mills is just enjoying it he's taking out his theatrical makeup box he's playing lord bister in the lion hunt he's playing the Matalo and the Matalo scene is pure Shakespeare it's, it's Shakespearean comic relief it's wonderful it's very very funny well, and you can good.
1: see he, he loves playing those parts. I mean, when he's Lord Bister, who is, let's face it, a sort of randy old man, he's meant to be married to obviously the character who is his niece. And I think he calls her Apple Blossom. If you want the house, well, I'll buy it for you, Apple Blossom. And you can see he absolutely thrives on that. I don't think they gave enough humorous stuff and material to him. In that first episode, I think the other three sort of tease him because he's got all these very English words. Like he says, oh, it's super. And they dropped that after the first episode. And I thought those little touches work really well.
3: Yes, they would have given the characters a little bit more definition, something more for the viewers to hang on to. You know, if you've, if you've always got three against one with the other characters putting down the English guy, just light-heartedly putting him down but it gives you a hook
2: i think that he's really great in this and i think it's quite a coup that they got him to be honest i read in the tv times article the zoo gang featured on the front cover this is in march 30th to april the 5th 1974 mills said that he was very friendly with Gallico and used to have dinner with him and so did lily palmer so I should imagine that's probably why he was quite into doing the, I- the idea, but also that Lou Grade had sold him the series. He went to Lou Grade's office and Lou Grade played out a scene and did all the parts and John Mills thought he was so good at it,
1: he couldn't really say no. He'd, he'd been in a film, hadn't he, with Lily Palmer 30 years ago, because I yeah. think there's in his autobiography, he'd sort of fallen in love with her 30 years ago. He said, oh, I, it was such a shame I was married at the time. And then he yeah, says, yeah. actually, she's even more beautiful now than she was sort of 30 years before. And mm. actually, she, she, we, we talked about that maybe the actors being a little bit long in a tooth. She's a very glamorous sixty.
3: I mean, if, if you look at all the, the, the modes, for want of a better word, that they, they dress her in across the series, there's all the different bright colours and, and outfits and whatever, which essentially reflect the spirit of, of the Riviera and what have you. But if you look at all of that, coming back to the Matelo scene, if you come back, back to that one, she's dressed in a simple black roll neck top and she looks absolutely stunning. And you can see why Mills then or Mills back when he was younger or Mills even then would have fallen for her she looks very very cool very chic very charming in that she also looks great
2: in the lion hunt when she's pretended to be delgado's wife with that black
3: wig to um sort of come back to john mills a big benefit to mills and to the character is that he's got an establishment he's literally got one of the two main standing sets his workshop so so he's got in terms of character, he's got literally so much more physically behind him. He is well-established within the scene. And, and obviously, Lily's got the bar, which I think is a lovely set. And the back room functions well for the HQ, for the gang. It's nice and simple. It's sort of rustic. And so from that, Mills gets much more benefit than Keith or Morse.
2: We should probably just talk about Lily Palmer then, who I thought was a real benefit to this show. I think her acting's fantastic. She's really emotive. You can really feel the pain that she's going through when she talks about her husband. You can sense her anger at the thought that the man who betrayed them is in the town. She's just a class actor, and it comes across so well on screen.
1: I mean, I can't Mm. speak highly enough of her in this. No, No, she does. I mean, as a Francophile, I have one tiny problem which is that this is a series being shot in France. Why on earth did they not give the part to a French lady? I mean, she does have a German accent. And when she's speaking with her French accent, as someone who is a French speaker, I can feel the German coming through. She is perfect. She's beautiful. She's a fantastic actor. I just, I do wonder, it was a strange choice. I mean, because she is so anti-German, her character. She must have laughed. She must have been thinking a lot of the time, there's a wonderful irony, that here I am as a German lady. She curses the Germans whenever the name is even mentioned in the show, doesn't she?
2: But she could be German, but she could also be ashamed of what the Germans did. I mean, she probably- is. Yeah, so, I mean, that could be part mm. of it. And, that, and if that's the case, it's great acting and I think she's added, adding a lot to it.
3: You mentioned the, the acting skill of Lily. There are two nice little touches in that first episode when Tommy comes in and tells Manouche he spotted Boucher and she just looks at him and she tries to say no, but it doesn't come out, it's a silent no. And that is a brilliant little look that she passes to John Mills. And the other touch, and I, I assume this is a directorial thing, when they're in the gallery and Boucher comes into the gallery to look at the Rembrandt, you literally see Alec and Steve frog march her out of the gallery because she is so tense, so uptight, so angry. Nice little thing, not easy to spot, but if you spot it, it's a lovely little piece of acting and directing.
1: I think she has a lot of the best dialogue in the show. Um, I mean, it reminded me of the Persuaders when in Mindless Murder, which is I think the weakest of the six episodes, she says she feels she's coming alive. And it reminded me so much of Roger's comment in an early episode of The Persuaders. And then she says that they're doing good deeds in a wicked world. And she's got lots of lovely little um, Mm. expressions that she brings in. And she does it with panache each time
3: yeah that little phrase is is essentially the philosophy of the gang isn't it doing good deeds in a wicked world or an evil world whatever she calls it uh, that's the fundamental robin hood philosophy and it's one of the, the few nice lines that pop up now and then
2: so we get to our last in the quartet barry morse he'd come off being in the adventurer with gene barry so i thought he'd be quite used to not troublesome, America. well, Gene Barry was troublesome, but Brian Keith wasn't troublesome. But also, he'd been in The Fugitive for years. He was used to how American actors work, as well as English actors. I just felt he was a little bit underplayed. I think you're right, they didn't really give him enough to do. In the last couple, he kind of got a little bit more, I thought. But those first four, he felt not like a spare part, but... Almost kind of like he was twiddling his thumbs for some of the time. And what am I going to do next? Do you think that could have been stepping back from the pressure of being a sort of semi-lead in The Adventurer? I suppose in The Adventurer, he ended up directing some of the episodes. And that was because he found Gene Barry impossible at times. And the only way he could get him to do things was to butter him up as a director and say, Oh, Gene, you know, you look fabulous today. Let's do this scene. And Gene Barry would agree to it. I suppose we're going slightly off there. But I don't know, I just I just thought he'd have been used to it, especially as he's, he was signed up to do Space 1999 afterwards. So he, he knew how TV series worked with Lou's company. He knew the drill, so I don't understand. And
3: I suggest he does feel underexploited because I think he pops in, he does a turn and pops in the odd ad lib here and there when he's sitting at the background and at the table or whatever. I mean, the one that jumps to mind is Twisted Cross again when they're talking to Hercule, and when Hercule gets uptight and, the, and everything calms down and loosens up and Hercule goes away, and one of the last little bits of the scene is just Barry raising a glass and saying, here's to fast horses, um, encouraging her, Hercule's gambling habit. But I, I, that sounded to me like an ad-lib.
1: Getting the guy who basically is this, the second lead in The Fugitive is massive, because mm. We probably don't appreciate it in the UK. This is arguably the biggest ever series in America. It broke all the records. I think the final episode is watched by 80 million people in the United States, which was more than The Beatles when they appeared on, on American TV a few years before. I just wonder, I mean, in The Fugitive, he's playing a very, very straight, motivated, obsessed policeman who is, who is after the, the main character. Maybe a lighter role didn't quite suit him I mean we we tend to forget don't we of course I mean Barry Morse is British he'd spent the whole first half of his acting career in Britain so certainly he shouldn't have had any of the problems that maybe Keith had in in sort of getting into that sort of spirit of how British television or British acting works should he
3: but I think really the essence of the thing is as has been said before the scripts and we've really got to sort of look at the scripts in those terms, in light of the fact that the actors thought they were deficient, but are they truly deficient? Are they really that bad?
2: We should really talk about the scripts. So we've got John Huff in his DVD audio commentary talking about the problems with the scripts. I'm just gonna play you a little bit of this.
0: Doug and I uh, went down there in uh, 1974 to shoot the series and we had quite a few problems because the scripts had not arrived and we waited in England uh, for quite some time. The scripts were held up in America And we actually went to Nice. We waited in the Negresco Hotel there. And... uh, for quite uh, a time before the scripts finally came. So we made these shows without any kind of rehearsal or walkthrough or anything like that. We were really under pressure uh, to uh, get them shot on time. The actors had a lot of problems because of the late arrivals of the script. And we didn't have a chance. Uh, to uh, do the proper uh, preparation indeed on the very first weekend when we were about to start shooting on a Monday the actors rebelled and did not want to go out and shoot until we had various scenes rewritten Uh, but the producer Herb Hirschman was uh, able to uh, speak to us all and explain that we just didn't have the budget to stop shooting and rewrite the scripts and, and uh, plan to find a detail we would have liked. And so we just began the show with a minimum of uh, preparation.
2: So there we are, the interesting points. The scripts weren't ready when the crew arrived and more to the point, when the actors were ready to go, they went on strike because of the quality of the
1: scripts. So this series hasn't got off to the best of starts. Do we know why there were six different writers from very different backgrounds? I mean, we've got a German, an Australian, two Americans, one who'd worked on a fugitive. Was there a connection there? I mean, I, I ask because there's a nice symmetry with the direction. Two directors, they direct three episodes each. I'm surprised that they didn't get in perhaps a couple of bigger names, more established names, to write maybe three scripts each.
2: I don't know if that was something to do with Herbert Hirschman, who was the producer. It could have been. Ultimately, he was in charge of the scripts, and I know that the scripts had to go to America for approval. Uh, As John Huff was saying, they got held up with approval, because obviously you've got to be approved by the network. I suppose if there's a, they were only ever going to do six episodes, which they were, in effect, if you've got six writers, they should all be able to have the brief and then all to be able to deliver, especially if you're filming the majority of the show on location. If you've got, say, two writers writing three scripts each, they're always going to be kind of up against it, aren't they, to, in terms of deadlines to get it in.
1: You're talking to someone whose dad would sit down and write all 13 episodes of a show. I do think you get a continuity when you've got one writer or two writers and six, there's not going to be much continuity. And I think that's one of the problems in the show that you've got that lovely, as I say, in the first episode, that real sense of humor with John Mills, character, super, super. Why does that never appear again? I imagine mm. if Reginald Rose had written all six scripts, all three of them, we might have got a bit more of that.
3: I wonder if it's the case that they were just th- the individual writers were just thrown the book and said, here, this, this is something, here's a scenario, take something out of this book. This is where we are, a very basic Bible, get on with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really as such in the um, ITC story information book, which I've got here. It's a bit of a strange one, really, because you've got six writers and six episodes. And like Rodney said, the continuity is not there,
3: really. It's an unusual selection of writers. First, you've got the developer, Reginald Rose. He writes episode one. He's the guy who wrote the play, The Twelve Angry Men. He's, he worked with Stanley Greenberg on The Defenders um, in America. He wrote a single episode of The Twilight Zone. Then you've got Howard Dimsdale, the script consultant. And you would expect a script consultant's fingerprints to be more over the series, no matter how long or short it is. But he's he's only done this one
2: mindless murder as well yeah wasn't
3: mindless murder and honest. then you've got john Cruise writing the counterfeit trap john Cruise a very safe pair of itc hands and then you've got a completely off the wall choice this guy sean graham whose whole background is in documentary filmmaking he studied with paul rother at elstree he spent most of his career in ghana making documentaries and shorts and then suddenly he's writing this piece of light entertainment. I mean, it's a good enough script in, in terms of the, of the series. It's, it's one of my favorites. But it's completely out of the blue. And you've got William Fairchild, who was a writer and cineast for Rank for quite a long time. And he wrote for The Four Just Men, and he went on to write for The Return of the Saints. So it is a very eclectic mix of writers. And, and I wonder if, if something about the delay in the script is the fact that possibly Rose and Dimsdale were based in America.
2: Possibly. You omitted Peter Yeldham as well, didn't you? He'd written for The Persuaders. You know, his script was pretty good, actually. African Misfire. I quite like that. The plot is quite good in terms of Steal and Kind of Steal Again, which I think we've mentioned is kind of a a sort of running motive with the Zoo Gang. I'm not sure why they employed six writers, really. Cruise is, a, like you say, safe pair of hands, and Counterfeit Trap is a great episode. But, let like you say, mindless murder? Oh dear.
3: I wonder why the actors were complaining. I mean, because there is a kind of structure to each story in terms of plot. And there there is a degree of cross-plotting or different plots developing. They're not as interwoven as something, say, like Gideon's Way, like Creasy would weave and whatever. But there are layers to them. But I wonder if, I mean, especially in episode one, obviously, you've got a lot of exposition. So I wonder if the scripts were just too talky, because there are points in the show where you can close your eyes and listen to it like a radio play.
2: Revenge Post-8 is, is a decent pilot, but like you say, it's got to set the stall out, hasn't it? So there's a lot of work involved in
1: that. I think I think it's the pace, because as I say, you, you've got these wonderful locations, and they do make quite good use of the locations, particularly when they go up into the mountain roads on the, in a couple of the episodes. I think at times, though, the scripts just don't feel taut enough. That has to come down partly, I imagine, to the material the directors had.
3: I think the real clunker is Mindless Murder. It's undynamic from the off. I mean, the other episodes, they've got the teasers. I think the teasers are a bit too long. They give a bit much away, but that's my opinion. Then you've got the post-teaser action sequence, but even the post-teaser action sequence in Mindless Murder doesn't take off. I mean, John Hoff uses some handheld in that little sequence. He uses some off-kilter angle, but it just doesn't gel.
1: I must admit, and this might just be a personal preference thing, I'm not a great fan of teasers that are a medley of snippets to come. I want a teaser to literally hook me at the beginning of a story. And to give you an example where I think this doesn't work, in the very last episode, we've got a wonderful scene where Lily Palmer's character is pulling that car up on a crane. There is no surprise when that comes to that at all, because we've already had it in the medley of snippets. And I think that that's a real shame because it's a wonderful scene. It's very funny. As i say this element of surprise is gone maybe that's just me i don't know um, no
3: that, that's not just you I, I think the teasers are too long and they give too much away and like you say because essentially directorially that episode that final episode is a little flat twisted cross and you've got that lovely big set piece at the end and you've already blown it in the teaser
2: yeah but maybe that's something that was to do with the american networks because lots of Americans police drama cop shows action and adventure type things had those teasers I mean there's plenty that I've seen over the years and just think like okay so we kind of know what's going to happen in this one because of that it's funny because on the DVD actually there are some of the episodes that don't have them on because obviously I've been watching them on Blu-ray and then I watched the commentaries on the DVDs talking of that Blu-ray I mean doesn't it look Glorious in Blu ray, especially when you were saying about the locations. I mean, again, we've talked about this on the Persuaders down in the south of France, but you can feel the warmth coming through your screen again, can't you? With this, I was going to say they really made great use of mountain roads and sort of up in the mountain type fort things and stuff. It looks
1: stunning. And I mean, um, I only have the Persuaders on normal DVD and I got Zoo Gang on Blu ray, and the difference is just stunning. South of France looks three times as colourful and blue, and it really does look great.
3: It gives it that vibrancy, and that is essentially the major hook for the series. You've got that those gorgeous South of France locations again, because within the group itself, as we've said before, that there are no great character hooks. Unlike the Persuaders, there are no particular vehicles. Nobody drives this. Nobody drives that. So the South of France is possibly the biggest hook, and they do make it look gorgeous. They do make good use of some of these locations. I mean, the little simple sequence when they're doing the cutbacks in um, African Misfire, when Manouche is in town with Jacques Picard. Lovely little scene just strolling along the harbour, and it looks gorgeous.
1: The harbour's great, and, and it's a great location for Les Pecheurs, because that's right on the harbour, isn't it? That's quite interesting that you mentioned
2: that, because on the DVD commentary, John Huff was saying what a nightmare it was to film, not only Les Pêcheurs, but also all around the place. They employed gendarmes to keep people away while they were filming, but the roads were so busy. And he was saying he found it really difficult to film there. So he did a pretty good job, though, considering if it was that difficult.
0: Some of the locations were really difficult, as I've... Uh said previously in terms of that Nice is a very, very busy city and we'd hire the gendarmes to try and control traffic for us, but there were times when we were overwhelmed with the traffic and uh, it forced, it slowed us down in uh, trying to shoot.
2: The series started filming in April 1973. We know that from the clapperboards seen on the outtakes and in various stills galleries and ran through to June 73. The South of France filming was obviously first and then they went back to Pinewood. And the standing sets at Pinewood were the interior of uh, Roger's bar. That's the front room and the back room. And Tommy's uh, workshop stroke jewellery shop and there was also a third standing set, which was often redressed, which was usually a villain's hideout or some sort of lair. But great use of the set at Pinewood for Roger's Café. I think it's a really great set, personally.
3: It's not production design of the level two, The Persuaders. In episode one, we've got a nice little scene where they presumably go into the Negresco. That is half a room at Pinewood, and half a specially designed small set where the telephones are and whatever. But that's really nice. But the, the interesting thing about the Zoo Gang as a whole is you don't see any of the Pinewood environs or the back lot. Not a thing. They concentrate on using the location footage properly. They cut it nicely. You basically end up in, in the two or three sets. So you don't go wandering around and think, oh, yes, I know that. That's the bit of the back of whatever, which is, is quite different for an ITC series possibly.
2: I think, though, the the dressing of that cafe bar is really good because it's, you know, she's not super glamorous and she has got the French locals who work at the harbour coming in. And I like the fact it's a little bit drab and a little bit rustic, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for yeah Um, and not OTT. So, yeah, I, I think that they did well there. So we should talk about the two directors, John Huff and Sidney Hayes. Interestingly that they both had worked on the Avengers and brought some of their Avengers techniques to the way this series was filmed. I'm thinking in particular the use of mirrors. There's lots of little mirror shots that they use, but also the low camera shots, especially on cars. I think they did quite a good job, really.
3: Yeah, you've got um, Sid Hayes, who formerly worked as an editor for Rank, and he worked very closely with Roy Ward-Baker, editing several movies with him. And as you say, he directed several episodes of The Avengers and The New Avengers, and his further ITC connection, he directed the two ITC pilot movies, Fire Chasers and Mr. Jericho. And he's quite an accomplished director, and he made Night of the Eagle with Peter Wingard, which which is one of the better black-and-white horror films from England of the period. John Hough, of course, honed his skills on The Avengers as an assistant director, then second unit, and then finally got his director's ticket. He directed a cult hammer film, Twins of Evil, with Peter Cushing. There was a a connection there. And he also directed Patrick McGowan in Brass Target. And if you look at the clapperboard for the opening credits of the Zoo Gang in the Stills Gallery, he's down as Hurricane Hough. I'd I'd love to know the reason behind that, but I think he must be a pretty strong director if he can handle Patrick McGowan anyway.
2: I think there's a story on the DVD about why he's called Hurricane Huff. It's something to do with gambling on a Sunday, which was their day off. I don't know if you've listened to those commentaries. Uh, they're quite dry, but there's, they're quite informative. He does it with a guy who's a camera operator, mm-hmm. and it's quite technical. So he's asking him a lot about, oh, well, what lens would you have filmed this scene on? And things like that. So it's very informative, but I'm not sure it's everyone's cup of tea. I thought Huff did a good job. I thought Sydney Harris did well. I mean, it's interesting actually that they did three each and they alternated. I guess if they had a third director, you know, that's more expense going down to the south of France to do the filming. And I suppose at least they could talk to each other about getting some sort of continuity and some sort of feel for the series. So it does have its advantages.
3: It's interesting that you've got an established director like Sidney Hayes and you've got a still then fairly up and coming director in John Huff. Now, I wonder if they were sort of pitching to go for a contrast in style.
1: Yeah,
2: although they, when you look at them, they're not that stylistically different.
1: I think that's probably a strength in a way. um, On a mini series like this, because you haven't got the continuity with the scripts, so it's quite nice that there is a sort of almost an in-house style with the direction, and it does take it perhaps to the next level, doesn't it? Those little shots in the mirrors, and I think is it in the pilot episode when Barry Morse is looking in at the big house and the chauffeur is drawing up plans, etc. I think that's in the pilot episode, and um, those are the little touches do add to it there are many stylish touches in the script so it needs to come from the director i think i was
2: going to say there is a wonderful shot of barry morse there in that episode that you're talking about where he crouches down in front of the car and the car's got yellow headlights because obviously it's in france and his face is partially lit by the yellow headlamps so his face is actually yellow I think that's just a magnificent shot. And it's all for like five seconds of film.
3: When I first started re I was wobbling with John Hoff's direction. I thought... You know, this isn't quite as good, but now that I've ranked them, actually Counterfeit Trap, directed by John, is, is my favorite one. And there are some nice little, little touches in that. You've got that lovely over-the-shoulder in-car shot when Manushi's is driving to Halliday's apartment. And straight on from that, as she opens the door, you've got that nice little counterpoint visual of her reflection in the crystal ball. It's just a nice little touch in there. And like you say, there are some lovely mirror shots from both directors.
2: I thought they did really well, actually, considering, especially from what listened to the commentary, from what he said, how difficult it was to film in those locations with people permanently wanting to be, you know, what's going on. And unlike the Persuaders, where we mentioned in our last podcast, the authorities down there were incredibly cooperative. It seems like for this show, they weren't that cooperative at all. But maybe that's just one of those things that's a couple of years later and
1: again a great advert for the south of france and it offers us some slightly more off-the-beaten-track little bits of places like Nice as well. Because, I mean, for example, where Mills' shop is, that, that's not on a main thoroughfare, is it? It's almost like a little back street, and you can imagine it's slightly up the hill in Nice. And I like the fact that there is a slightly less glamorous side to the south of France that we see, which fits in with what you said about Les Pêcheurs. It's not an upmarket restaurant. It's a fisherman's bar, isn't it? And it
2: does give it a little bit of sleaze, which are quite like. You know, so it's not like Persuader's World where it's all polished and, Mm. you know, champagne and Hotel Negresco and water skiing is a little bit of a sort of undercurrent of criminality and grime.
3: Yeah, well, this rather brings it back to the book, because in in the book, the the principal character, Rock, Run the Fox, the Brian Keith character in this, he's got connections everywhere in the underworld. And and that is the sort of uh, milieu in which the zoo gang operates. And And I think that's a pretty nice touch in terms of the TV series.
2: Yeah, that's only hinted at, really, in African Misfire, isn't it? Where he goes to see them after they had uh, recovered the collection. He sort of Mm. says, oh, I've got contacts, even though he's only sort of playing. That's
1: the only time it's really sort of hinted at, isn't it? One of the things I love about African Misfire is that we've got this Jack Picard character and he is slightly younger. And he plays, what do they call him, the sort of mad colonel. And it means that we can have a little bit more action-adventure because he's a bit more lively. And I do think sometimes when the four of them take on a, sort of a secret sharer, it does add an extra dynamic.
3: Drifting that point along, Rodney, thank you. That's the sort of conspiratorial behaviour that you get in the short stories in the book from the policeman George Roger is a bit of a clown figure to me. And just think of the potential if you could have cast Kieran Moore as the the copper. Because the the copper is meant to be a peer of the group. And he's meant to know all of what's gone on in the past and the resistance. And he's a little bit pragmatic, really. He sort of bends the rules a bit. And that's what you've got in African Misfire. You've you've got that extra dimension with that character. And if that character had transposed into being the policeman, I think it would have given the, the show a bit of a lift. And I thought what's what's also interesting with
1: the dynamics between the characters in that episode is all the men are jealous of him. As soon as uh, Lily Palmer's character is paying him attention, it's obviously she fancies him and she's flattered that he's come back into her world. They're all really cheesed off about it. I wonder if, had the series gone on longer, is John Mills' character, is he sort of in love with Manoush a little bit? Definitely.
2: Mm. I was going to say about that, there's a hint of romance between... John Mills and Lily Palmer's characters but bringing it back to Kieran Moore it's almost like the Zoo Gang plus one that episode isn't it it's like the Zoo Mm -hmm. Gang become five again you did mention there and it is probably one of the biggest things in the whole series for me the casting of Michael Petrovich who prays Lily Palmer's son Lieutenant Georges Roger in the commentary John Huff says he's great and thinks he's Really brilliant, and he was a John Huff find. But I think he's too young. How do you get to be a lieutenant in the French police at that age? I also think he's just not convincing as an actor. I don't know if it's down to the lines but he just comes across as, well, so wooden. And that gag they've got with him sort of permanently standing up Tommy's niece, who's played by Jill Burton, who, again, I think at the time is not particularly great. Once is funny, second time's a bit, and by the time you get to it done again and again, it's it's too much. But I wasn't convinced by Michael Petrovich at all, and I felt he's the weak link in this.
3: I think he's been saddled with a most unforgiving role, really. He's half driven by exposition or excuse and he's half comic relief and like you say the the thing with Tommy's daughter is it's a one note joke if they were there the two of them to add a more youthful dimension it fails badly
1: yeah I mean I don't think the Saretta Wilson's part I don't think it matters as much she's mm-hmm. quite pretty and amiable and it's a very souffle little role she plays in each mm-hmm. of the episodes but I think in terms of you know, Michael Petrovich I, I do think he's wooden he doesn't offer any sort of gravitas or anything to the show.
3: He fails in the, the sort of relief. There are one or two bits and pieces where the character does perform reasonably. But, and, and another thing for the poor bloke, he was saddled with what must be the most god awful haircut of the 1970s.
2: I also think a lot of the time when he's being a policeman on the job, he kind of seems to muck it up a bit. You know, it never mm. goes quite right for him, does it? And I don't know if that's some sort of gag that they were trying to use, but it didn't work.
3: I think they're trying to illustrate the point that he's always, he seems to be always one step behind the gang and he's, he's following on mum's coattails more or less. But there is one nice little sequence in Lion Hunt when he, he engages with the gang to get Leon out of the prison. That is as the policeman should be, as per the books. He should be that sort of co-conspirator and like, like you said with Kieran, the, f- the fifth member of the gang.
2: Going back to that TV Times article, Lou Grade was rather pleased about this because I'm going to read you a little Lou Grade quote. I pulled out all the stops to get these big names simply because I thought they were ideal for the parts. Having seen the early rushes, I know I was right. Zoo gang works. The end result is worth all the effort that has been put into it by everybody. Lou's loving this show, isn't he? Mm -hmm. I guess he's pleased he's got people like John Mills in it and Lily Palmer and he knew Barry Morse and he's got Brian Mm -hmm. Hughes. So he's got his sort of star-studded role because Lou was one for always wanted the stars in the series, didn't he? He loved Robert Vaughan in The Man from Uncle's. So, right, I'll get Robert Vaughan. I don't know what the show's going to be. I'll just get him.
1: But in a way, isn't it a bit like you've signed up all of these stars, you've signed up, imagine, the equivalent of sort of Ronaldo and Zola, and then you get Ricky Tomlinson to manage them in terms of like the scripts. I would have thought you've got together some serious talent there, give them the material.
3: And essentially by doing what he did, he set a fundamental limitation for the series because they knew they only had limited availability. From that point, there's no room for trial and error. No real room for development. You've got six shows and you're supposed to deliver bang, bang, bang. But it's not to say that we should dismiss the series out of hand, I think.
2: This has got a a rightful place as a half, well, more than half decent ITC 1970s action adventure show. And I stress 1970s there because obviously it doesn't hold up, say, in comparison to Danger Man, Gideon's Way, Man in a Suitcase. But for a 70s ITC show, if we look at The Adventurer,
1: The Protectors, Return of the Saint, Jason King, this isn't half bad. One thing we haven't mentioned yet, the main titles are superb. I think they're absolutely sublime. I'll upset Jazz by saying I think they're every bit as good as The Persuaders. But I really do, in terms of the actual titles... I think everything on those work beautifully. The way the the wine bottle changes date, the way we go from the sepia images of the Gestapo being attacked and, and then suddenly we're now in the present day at a similar table with a similar bottle of red wine. The now and then photos and the animal sketches, I think they're beautifully put together, whoever did that.
3: Arguably the best piece of storytelling in the thing. It's nice and compact, it's cinematic, it does it. It gives you the backstory like we did with The Persuaders. The designs have a visual impact and of course you've got that wonderful music
2: well i agree with you i think they're wonderful titles i think that they are up there with the best itc titles i mean it's a real coup getting paul mccartney for a start um and that theme is great and lou obviously had connections to the beatles with the atv publishing they owned the rights to the beatles back catalogue at the time and then paul mccartney did that james paul mccartney atv special for lou and paul mccartney had just done live and let die You know, he obviously was the busiest Beatle, whether you like him or not. He he wasn't work shy. And that music cut to the titles. Like you say, those titles are really fantastic. And we should mention Ken Thorne's Incidental music, because that is another really great soundtrack that's available that you should buy. But Mm -hmm. all that music is wonderful.
1: Well, actually, I mean, I think it's Ken Thorne's Incidental music that does provide the glue
3: between the episodes. And you talking about the music brings me to the hijack sequence in African Misfire, the opening sequence. That is cinematic. You've got the whole thing set up by Hayes. The pictures tell you the story you get in this heist. And you've got that lovely little piece of music, that running bass line or whatever, underneath it with Ken Thorne. And that, that is, within the these stories, that is a nice little piece of cinema.
2: We should probably dissect each episode a little bit, really, because there's only six. Like I said, I felt that Revenge Post-Dated was actually a very good opening episode for this series. It was done well. And what I liked in particular was that Roger was so set on killing the Butcher... But in the end, she's been managed by the rest of the gang to talk her out of killing him so they can basically send him to prison forever. And I thought that the end part where all is revealed that it is the zoo gang, I know he's sort of
1: like oh,
2: maybe having a heart
1: attack or whatever, but
2: I thought that was really well done.
1: I think it's stylish. I mean, I, I love the fact, I, I think it's um, the fox who says we're not murderers. And I do like that sort of moral dilemma. I like theatrical things like the stockings coming off in the hay barn.
3: There's a lovely little touch from Walter Gautel Boucher when he sees the Rembrandt and there's that tiny little twitch of greed passes across his face. And and the actual theft of the thing, it's, it's very well done, it's very well assembled, it's very well cut. We've got one of the better lines of dialogue from the scripts when George suspects them and they admit it and they ask him to keep quiet for the sake of his mum. Uh, he says to her, you're too old for all of this. And then she just turns back and says, Ah, uh, and you're too young, and that's that's a nice little hmm. mini scene there.
1: I don't think we get a um tell, not show. I do think they're able to give us backstory without it becoming tedious in that episode. Talking
3: about the script again, there there is a nice little piece of plotting when they're at the Negresco and they divert the real Calvin Smith and then they pass Boucher a note saying, we've got your Rembrandt. So that essentially sets him up within the plot to steal it without stealing it. And that's a nice little tilt. I thought that gallery
2: raid and all of that was quite nicely done.
3: Coming back to directorial touches, when he takes him to the barn to ostensibly collect the picture, there's a nicely cut conversation between Boucher and Alec. He used some good visual cross-cutting and he does audio cross-cutting as well, which was quite difficult for back then. Nice little touches.
2: It's a strong opening story, really, for the series. What follows in Mindless Murder, I think we've all agreed, is the worst of the six. I just think the performances by Ingrid Pitt is just so OTT. There are some nice touches in it. There's a great scene where Lily Palmer and Barry Morse are climbing up from the sort of road into the mansion on those ladders. And uh, it's actually Lily Palmer and Barry Morse doing it. No stunt doubles, nicely shot that's really nice and the actual location of the mansion is lovely it's just that performance that really yes. rates me
1: the husband is no better and alex scott <laughs> okay alex scott is always alex scott the episode to me is summed up when george says near the end i am witty and amusing and i tell you what he's not and that episode isn't
3: like Jazz said, the, the, the actual heist is well done. The, the Zoo Gang's Heist of the Diamond is, is nicely done. The bit with the yeah. the mirror in the bedroom, there's a nice bedroom set. The little thing he uses, how he uses the counter to leave the combination behind for Lily and Steve. That's the problem. One or two things don't make the episode, and and it is a real clunker. When you rank them, I, I think there's a, there's a massive gulf between number five and number six.
2: I don't know the production order. One of the things that I haven't managed to get any information on is the production order, which I'd really love to know, actually. I know, obviously, with these shows that they film the locations in South France, they come back to England, and depending on the availability is how they finish them off. But I would love to know which one was the one that they started work on first and where this is in the run, because I think that might have maybe something to do with it. No, sorry,
3: I was t- I was talking personal rankings from one to six. You get down to five and there's a gulf. There's a pit to mindless murder for me, personally.
1: I would agree. Yeah, there is a gulf, isn't there? Yeah, it's
2: just such a shame that it's a second episode on the DVD or the Blu-ray set, because after that great pilot, you think, you know, you've set yourself up and this is going to be quite a fun show or quite a good series, and then you get that and you kind of think, God, are the rest going to be like this?
1: No, it is It is a great shame. And I mean, I can't think of many worse performances in an ITC show than hers. The two of them are so painful. It almost, you have a fear of what's to come. And that is a great shame, as you said, because there won't be any repeats of anything as histrionic or ridiculous as that again in the miniseries, will there?
3: I mean, the performances are appalling. Clinton Green is sort of straight out of the timber yard. The principal motive of the plot is unclear. I've, I've watched it two or three times in the last fortnight. And I'm still not clear exactly how this supposed extortion plot works.
2: I agree with that. And I also, I don't really get the opening, not the teaser, but what was achieved by killing that girl and just taking that tapestry? That's one of the bits of directing that I thought was really flat. I know you said about the hands-held, but I just thought...
3: It just doesn't work. It's supposed to be a dynamic opening sequence. But it's just so leaden. It really is badly directed.
2: But there's not much in this episode that is really worth giving a plus point to, I'm afraid. Which is a shame, because actually the next episode, and we're talking about them in the order they come on the Blu-ray or DVD, whatever you've got, african misfire i thought this is a great little story and i should point out that i think this is the first piece of itc product placement i've ever seen there is a bottle of perrier water and it's close up and it draws back i think stephen halliday's often mineral water he obviously didn't say perrier water but that's the first time i've ever seen that in an itc show Like I say, this is the Zoo Gang plus one, isn't it? Kieran Moore's doing a lot of the action. I think he does it really well. And like you say, the love interest there is great because obviously, like you say, Lily Palmer's quite keen on him. And the jealousy definitely comes from John
1: Mills in this. But we've got a really good guest cast here. Kira Moore, who he gave up acting after this and became a sort of social documentary maker, but he's excellent in it. Earl Cameron, is, I think, is great in that sort of slightly sleazy role. You don't know how trustworthy he is. I and mean, then the general Naganda character is just a wonderful sleazeball. He's that sort of stereotypical ex-African dictator who's now living off the fat of the land type thing. And uh, I thought they all worked really well, the guest characters and actors in it.
3: I thought, I thought Naganda was hmm. very good. The sort of topical thing is back in the 60s, you would have Peter Wingard in blackface in The Baron or in The Saint. And this is proper ethnic casting. And the and the guy was very good. That dialogue, the Perrier water dialogue, when he's, he's talking to Steve initially, that's a nice little scene, well written. And, and the thing about charity being tax deductible, that's a nice little touch of humour in there.
1: He has a wonderful piece of humour when he's talking about the Riviera and the fact that everyone there is so keen to point out how wealthy they are, but they'll make a huge amount of money at the uh, charity gala. You can't help but quite like General Naganda because he's got this sort of intelligent cynicism. i rather like mm. his character.
3: And in terms of plot, it's a nicely structured plot. I mean, there are bits that drag. You've got Sir Picard steal, then the, the zoo gang steal it back. And then they realize they've made that mistake uh, and they're going to fund the coup. So now they're going to steal the funds and that doesn't come off. So they have to come into another last resort. So you've got four counterpoints of plotting in there, cross-plotting, which is not bad considering these scripts are supposed to be so appalling
1: and that weird training ground in the forest it's almost a little (laughs) bit surreal i
3: love that yeah the um the jason king school of mercenaries if you look at the dodgy moustaches on that lot
2: (laughs) (laughs) well it's quite topical as well because when this is being made in 73 you know if you think of people Mm. like Idi Amin and that so there's a, a touch of realism there that comes across quite nicely i think
3: We've got sort of two little set pieces. We've got loads of policemen gags dressed up as policemen. But the other thing that this series seems to do very well is motor shots. The trailing shots are very well executed when they're following jewels. You get a lot of the locations and it's nicely cut again. And they seem to do this throughout the series. They handle car scenes very well.
1: Well, Um, we haven't got any of the awful back projection that you get in a lot of those 6 series. That's true.
3: We get some real-life motor footage. And there's a nice little touch of humour in this one when they're trying to steal the funds and Tommy's wired up the the circuit to blow the lights or whatever he's doing in the auction house. Uh, He said, you know, trip that switch in 15 seconds or whatever. Steve says to him, you know, any idea what it'll do to me? And then Tommy nonchalantly replies, no, but it'll be interesting to find (laughs) out.
2: Yeah, so that's really quite nice, actually, because it goes wrong. So they don't actually always get things right. It's a failure there for them. So they don't get the funds. Um, And I think that was really nicely done in this
3: episode. We've got one major piece of criminality from that episode that we haven't covered. At the climax, when John Mills is laying out the tripwires and the tape recorder, the biggest crime probably of the whole series is that Tam O'Shanter and the red trousers that John Mills is wearing.
2: So the lion hunt... We've got Roger Delgado, who I really rate as an actor. He, I always liked his performances in virtually anything he was in. But I have to say, was he doing an impression of Jason King at the start? He looks so naff in that disguise.
3: Well, I'm not surprised George nicked him, because there's no way he should be going through uh, immigration in that fright wig and those dark shades. You can't recognise who that is at all. Could be anybody.
1: But he's another of those secret sharers, isn't he? He is another Mm. uh, gang plus one. He is a sort of soulmate. They describe him as a Robin Hood, honest and unselfish. And that's sort of Mm -hmm. what they're meant to be, isn't it?
3: That's true, yeah.
1: Now, I'm presuming this was virtually his last role, not including the one in Turkey where he died making it. Yeah,
3: 18th of June, 1973. So not long after this was filmed.
2: Real sad. But he was great in this. He was great. And I love the Lee Palmer's sort of fake wife in this. I thought she was really good.
3: Again, it's it's a fairly sort of multi-structured plot because you've got the initial arrest and then you've got the two corrupt guys. You look at the corruption angle and then when they realise they're being taken in the ambulance, they realise what he says. You've got a a kidnap, essentially a kidnap. They kidnap him from Dupont, but then they run into Dupont's villains at the end of that sequence. So it's a double kidnap. It's, It's very sort of of the book style this sort of plotting and then you've got of course as you say the the marvelous deception of senora otis by manush and finally revenge and exposure so, so you for what what are supposed to be sort of dodgy scripts you've got a decent amount of plot to keep you interested
1: pedro's character he is el leon isn't he are we meant to almost see again that he's part of the zoo gang because he's even got this lion name I thought that he was sort of almost like an honorary member for this
2: episode. Again great prison location and shooting on this. The villa is a wonderful
1: location isn't it? Right on the coast there. That's absolutely beautiful.
2: There's only one bit that's really iffy in this and that's where they're looking out the window of the villa uh, supposedly some sort of French demonstration. And if you look very quickly, you'll see a red London yeah. bus go by. I think, Smudge, you said it looks like Speaker's Corner. It is you?
3: Speaker's Corner, yeah. That's it. That's that's when um, the initial sort of sequence, when DuPont's talking to um, Ferdie Main's character. You've got El Leon as an honorary gang member, and then coming back to the book, in the story with the carnival, you've got Georges asking them to break the lion out. And that is, again, that sort of co-conspirator angle from the books. There's a fair bit of meat in this, actually.
2: The leads in this one, in particular, were beginning to gel really quite nicely. And I like the facts as well. A talk about a little bit of a light touch that they basically all go in, in disguise in this one.
3: More police action, of course, police disguises. The police double for John Mills was the stuntman Vic Armstrong's younger brother. And Vic, in his book, described the zoo gang as a sort of geriatric version of the Persuaders.
2: I suppose it's got the French locations, hasn't it? I think it's a good, quite a good plot in this one. It moves along quite nicely. You know, There's no no real draggy bits in it, is there?
3: The ending's pretty well executed. You've got an, a, a genuine bit of tension as they're sort of approaching the villa as inverted commas, the freedom fighters. And the, the thing with the candle lamp where Dupont is carrying the candle and somebody shoots it out is a nice touch because then you get that excuse to use that nice little bit of lighting, light and shade, as he goes back to answer the door to find Ferdy Main.
2: Again, we've mentioned this, five out of the six are pretty
1: good episodes, Mm -hmm. which actually, in hit rate... I think you enjoy them more a second time around. I hadn't seen Zoo Gang at all until a month ago. I watched them the first time and um, I actually found myself enjoying them far more second time around. You grow to like the four characters. Mm-hmm. And you are left, uh, I, certainly I was left at the end of the miniseries, a bit frustrated that it couldn't have carried on. Yes. I appreciate that time constraints, et cetera, but you just get the feeling they're warming up and that the second six episodes will be twice as good and then it's all over, which is a shame.
3: They just feel as though they are, in the last three, finding their feet, despite scripts, despite whatever, despite the limitations. As Jazz said a moment ago, it is beginning to gel.
1: And I suppose we haven't given them the credit that four leads must be very, very difficult to get right. As in, to get that sort of ambiance between the four characters, to get a little bit of dynamism and chemistry, it doesn't happen Mm -hmm. overnight. It's hard enough with two. Three is near impossible. Four, it's not easy.
3: It's the sort of too many assistants in the TARDIS sort of scenario, really, and, and and spreading the action, how you split the action.
2: Well it's also like where do you split them in part if two of them have got to go off and do one part of the story and it always seems to be that Mills and Palmer go off and do one and Keith and Morse do the other.
3: It would be interesting, as as Rodney said, you do find yourself left wanting more, I think, by the end of it. And it would be interesting to see how that would develop, how those different dynamics could develop if you could have sort of like a three and one or, to be radical, just one of the leads carrying the main part of the plot. Like I said, I think the Alec character really wasn't given enough screen time
2: so for me the next one counterfeit trap for me this is the best of the six i think the casting is great peter cushing is such a fabulous actor really great in the judge role where he's got caught up with this gang he doesn't want really to be involved with it but he has he's got in too deep he doesn't want them to kill anyone but they do again he acts with his eyes as
1: well Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee must be two of the most underrated actors of all time. And, you know, they get banded with horror. But um, as you say, he can act with his eyes. And he is a three-dimensional villain, isn't he? Because we have to say he is a villain. And yet, as you said, you know, he didn't realise he was getting himself in that deep. I think that makes him a far more interesting character than most of the slightly more cardboard cutout villains we tend to get.
2: And Jacqueline Pierce it's great to see her. Underused, though. She kind of just sits around in some of it. But there was a little, slight little thing I wondered about her character. Was she having an affair? Because when <laughs> Lily Palmer walks in and Jacqueline Pierce is with this other chap, um, she says, well, oh, I hope I'm not interrupting anything. She sort of comes back with this flip that says, oh, not at this time in the morning. I had to sort of watch that a few times to think she did say that, didn't she?
3: She did. And yet she's so, going to
2: be marrying, or she's just married, a very rich older gentleman. Is that, is that thing where all French gentlemen had mistresses, was she a mistress as well as a wife?
3: It struck me as that, yes. I, I can't sort of disagree on that point. I would say this is one of the best directed episodes. There's some nice touches. I mean, the opening sequence is good with the gold disguising the Diving weights very cleanly and quickly established and the counterfeit money heist is the most dynamic sequence within the the whole series i think it's really well done it's bang 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 it's straight into the action and in terms of the script and the plot what you notice once the action is over is you never get an explanation as to where this comes from why they're into this why they're chasing this how they know this what they're doing with it and that sort of new dynamism in terms of this series uh, if they could have sustained that that would have been lovely
1: I think it's got some of the best location shooting as well uh, mm-hmm. of the six episodes. There's some wonderful shots of Nice Beach and the coast, and then those wonderful locations that we talked about earlier up on the mountain roads. They look super. Well, and enough. I presume that is the same house, is it, that's used in Overture and the Persuaders, is it? Yes, it is. You're right about the, the mountain roads along the Corniche there where
2: Alec Marlow, Harry Morse's character is arrested for, you know, and he's got the bodies in the boot. That's so lovely and so well done. Nice mirror shot again of the policemen arriving on the motorbikes. That's a lovely little sequence, actually. It's-
3: it's really well done because you, you, re- you watch it and you, and you think it's just an action sequence, another one of those road sequence trailers. But then you, you suddenly click that John Hoff is managing three different journeys here, three different cars, three different sets of vehicles, and it is really well cut together.
1: The dead henchman on the sofa, that's about as chilling as you get in this series because he thinks that they're sitting there and he's thinking, well, what on earth are they doing? And mm-hmm. they were both very alive and rather cocky, weren't they, in the previous mm-hmm. scene? And suddenly there they are and that, thats that's what happens to you.
2: Yeah, and actually, Alec Marlowe, Barry Morse's character, actually, he's having a little bit more to do in this episode, especially when he meets those young guys, and the young guy says to him, why shouldn't I just sort of kill you now? Yeah, And, and he pulls the gun on him. So, you know, sort of age and experience, mate. I might be old, but...
3: The brilliant thing about that sequence when they do come up to the villa is the stillness in Barry Morse and the silence of the character and you can just see it all he's taking everything in he understands where we are he understands how the game is going to be played but he doesn't say a word coming back to Rodney's point about chilling incidences in the series the shooting of the policeman by the young thug is quite cold
1: well, particularly as it was totally unnecessary, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, there yeah. was no purpose to it. And yet this is an episode that's actually got quite a lot of funny scenes in it. There's a wonderful one in the bar when Keith is playing, again, the sort of the cop. And he, he empties that bar of disreputable clients in about two minutes, doesn't he? Yep. That's yep. a
3: lovely little piece of humour.
1: And then they're all checking their fake money down on the niece front a little later. I think there's are two very funny little scenes
3: that little scene with the money is a a really nice comic it's a quick scene it's a blink and you'll miss it Mm. scene but it really does add a lot of lightness to what is a particularly quite a dark episode really
2: something we haven't mentioned is all the newspaper signs and all the newspapers are in english there is a reason for this which john huff went into basically because this was being sold into america they felt that Americans wouldn't understand the French language. So it was decided that everything should be in English predominantly for the American market. So the last one of the six, the twisted cross, there are some really good points in this, but there are a couple of little points that I think could have been better. The first one is of the submarine, which is clearly a model and probably borrowed from a Gerry Anderson set. There's a scene where Brian Keith is diving and you can clearly see that is a swimming pool or a, a water tank somewhere because the steps going into the pool underwater you can see. Other than that, I thought, again, it's a good story. You know, there's some lovely handheld camera uh, work at the start. The only time I can think of in the whole show where there's like a, an optical zoom effect where the guy's walking into the
1: alleyway and one, one sort of shot comes through the other it's an emotive episode again, isn't it? You've got this recurring theme of the anti-German leopard. Uh, I think she describes the the, the rubies of a colour of blood or something when yeah. she's hard nosed, is not she? Uh,
3: she is, but she's caught out slightly when Schroeder says, "Yes, I was a Nazi, but I was working to free my wife, who was a Jew, in a Jewess, mm-hmm. in one of mm-hmm. the concentration camps." You literally see that butt in together. It's sort of like locking horns, that little bit. And I think Manoush is quite surprised by that. And and as he says, perhaps we have more in common than you would think.
1: That's a very deep moment.
3: It is. It just meets her philosophy head on. She's become singularly focused. Anybody German, bad. And this guy is that shade of grey that these sort of stories need.
2: It's also got some historical content now, hasn't it? Because the Nuremberg trials are mentioned and Goering's mentioned, so like that ties
1: it in, uh, in nicely with what you're just saying there. I think it's very realistic. My father had a Polish friend and she was woken up age five during the Second World War by Nazis coming into their house and shining torches on her face. And we went on a holiday in the 1970s to Spain, and she wanted to stop and put post-it type notes on all the German cars saying, you're a bastard. And that was 30 years later. Maybe you don't forget those things if you've gone through them and you've really been scarred by them.
3: That is a good little clash between those two characters. And this sort of script has got one or two little interesting lines. I mean, there's, there's a lovely line from Anne Lynn as Mrs. Schroeder, and she's she basically sewing up their situation in that one bedroom apartment. And she says, we're not living, Kurt. We're dying every day. The other line I spotted is a nice little piece of levity from the fake customs man when he, he takes the twisted cross off John Mills. He said, the French government would not cheat you any more than you would cheat them. I, I thought that was a lovely little cheeky line, particularly when you come to learn what he's done.
1: Yeah, I think this is Mills' fi- finest moment when he's really allowed to show us what he can do as a drunk fisherman, isn't it? Yeah, Even with yeah. it, there's the lovely sort of little rum cognac joke that's sort of running through it because she keeps offering him a rum, a rum and he wants a cognac. And I just think he plays that beautifully.
3: Small shout out for production design, and I know Rodney appreciates this one as well. When we go into the hairdressers, hairdressers. and you've got that lovely old-fashioned shop front, and then you go downstairs, and you've got that beautiful, funky 1970s orange thing. (laughs) Lovely piece of design.
1: The Hercule Barman is is a strange character, because he's obviously appeared in earlier episodes. But in this episode, I think we realised fairly early on that he's the baddie. I wasn't quite sure whether he is meant to be sort of semi-comic or not, because actually there's quite a sinister side to what he does.
3: And I saw him very much as that sort of Warren Mitchell character type of role from the Saint Marco de Cesare or whatever, always the bumbling little man, always there to to help and assist. And and then suddenly you've got this big bombshell turnaround at the end. It is quite a shock, really.
2: It's a nice little twist, because like you say, he was in an episode or two beforehand, but kind of blink and you miss it crane and car is a nice set piece but like you say if you've seen the teaser
1: you know what's going to happen which is a shame it's um, criminal because i mean how, how much would that have cost i bet that was quite a slice of the budget for that episode that went on that scene
3: yeah and you've got the fact that you've got your star up there in the crane kudos to Lady Palmer for climbing up in the crane and, and doing those sort of shots Directorially, it's, it's a quite a, a flat episode and, and the two peaks are the Matalow sequence in the bar and the set piece at the end.
2: Yeah, I thought it was, it was a good episode to end on, primarily because John Mills really steals it with that drunken fisherman. And it just kind of made me smile that he, he was so great, probably was having a whale of a time doing that. Probably a bit like being in rep, isn't it? When he's doing all these disguises for him. Well, yes.
3: Know? Yeah, he said, he said, I mean, the, the, the Lord Bister character in the other story, is it really is a, a rep sort of character. Whatever you think about the last episode, I, I still think it leaves you wanting more and, and thinking this could have developed a bit of tweaking. We could have made it a very different show.
1: Uh, as I say, it's a great shame that you've got most of the ingredients there for a decent series. And we've all agreed it really came down to scriptwriters.
3: But if if you've not seen it before and if you've not taken the chance on it, I still think there's a deal of enjoyment in there for you regardless of some of the niggles we've covered today.
2: The show was shown in the UK a year after It had been made. So they finished filming it, I think, in June 73. But it was shown in the UK and started in April 74. It was held back in the US and it was shown on NBC, two episodes per night, in July and August 75. That's over two years after the show had finished production. I think we probably should wrap up now.
3: Yeah, I I think... So I've said it before, I'll say it again. It needed room to develop, it needed room to grow, and the unfortunate circumstances of the fact were we, did, we didn't have that time. But again, I would have loved to have seen some more.
1: Personally, I think Smudges echoed what I would have said, which is uh, give it a go, because actually it's fun. I don't think we're going to pretend it's up there as a classic Mm -hmm. ITC show in the same sort of um, bracket as Men in a Suitcase, Persuaders, Danger Man, Gideon's Way. But it's by no means a turkey either. Yeah, I would agree. I think that you really
2: need to give this mini series a go. It's fun. Five out of the six episodes are really quite good. Avoid the clunker if you need to. If you want to see it in full glorious Blu-ray, I would recommend that too. It's just a fun series that's worth a go. I need to say thanks to Tim Beddows at Network for allowing us to use the John Huff DVD quotes. So thanks, Tim. Anyway, we need to sign off. So it's goodbye from us and we'll see you again soon. You have been listening to ITC Entertain the World podcast, episode five, The Zoo Game. It was presented by Jazz Wiseman, with Rodney Marshall and Al Sumritch. It is a bitter and twisted production for the morning after.